Professor Colleen Sheehan, who is going to uh, present the uh, final Althea's P. Mason lecture in Constitutional Law and Political Thought, Lust for Freedom. Her topic is James Madison and the Spirit of Republicanism. Uh, Colleen uh, is Associate Professor of Political Science at Philadelphia University, where she has taught since 1986. Uh, we're very pleased that this semester she is the Darwin Family Visiting Associate Professor in Politics here at Princeton, offering an, uh, a first-time undergraduate course in the thought of early American statesmen. American statesmanship. Uh, Colleen received her BA from Eisenhower College and her master's and her doctorate from Claremont Graduate School, uh, now Claremont Graduate University in California. Uh, two years ago, Colleen was here as a visiting fellow in the James Madison program. Her scholarly interests include American political theory and the ethics of Jane Austen. She has been awarded a number of fellowships and grants, including uh, grants from the Earhart Foundation, uh, Templeton Foundation, and the National Endowment for Humanities. She's co-editor with Gary McDowell of Friends of the Constitution, the writings of the other Federalists, uh, meaning uh, those who didn't write the Federalist Papers, uh, 1787 to 1788. And uh, she has written uh, for the William and Mary Quarterly, of the Journal of Political Philosophy and uh, Persuasions, the Jane Austen Journal. Uh, Colleen is a uh, former member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and of Pennsylvania Governor's Advisory Commission on Academic Standards. Uh, she currently serves as president of the Pennsylvania Association of Scholars, and uh, Colleen is working on a book on James Madison's theory politics of public opinion. Please welcome Professor Colleen Sheena. Thank you very much, Brad. Um, and I want to thank the James Madison program for having me back. Uh, and a, a particular thanks to the Garwood family for sponsoring the uh, establishment of the series in statesmanship here at Princeton. I'm enjoying it very much, and I hope the students who are involved in it are enjoying it too. Uh, recently, there was a study done by a museum in Chicago uh, dedicated to uh, understanding and promoting uh, the uh, First Amendment rights. And they surveyed a number of American adults and they found out some very interesting things. First of all, they found out that a certain percentage of American adults knew the five rights listed in the uh, First Amendment. One percent of American adults knew the five rights listed in the First Amendment. They also found out that, I think I've got this right, about 11 percent of those surveyed thought that somewhere between the phrase, Congress shall make no law, and the right to petition for grievances was the right to own pets. <laughs> About 17, 18% said that one of the rights in the First Amendment was the right to drive a car. And a whopping 38% knew that 
knew that one of the rights in the First Amendment was the right to plead the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> now, this is funny, but it's also perhaps a matter of some concern. Uh, at least to those of us who think that an understanding, that the people's understanding of their rights and responsibilities matters in this country. The predominant interpretation of Madison, the father of the Constitution, however, not everyone's interpretation, and there are people that are working to put forth a different interpretation. For example, uh, Alan Gibson, who's a fellow this year at the Madison program. But the predominant interpretation for many years has been that what Madison did was create this uh, uh, constitution that underneath it, what was at work was a machine that could go on of itself that he created this system of shrewd institutional arrangements so that the people could be left to pursue their own economic interests and not be bothered with questions that much of citizenship. Maybe vote now and again, but other than that, there'd be people in positions of power and or the system itself would work in such a way that it would protect our rights and liberties without the constant vigilance of the American people. That's not the Madison I've come to know over the years that I've been studying him. And that's not the Madison that Robert Frost understood. At President Kennedy's inaugural in 1961, the Capitol blanketed with freshly fallen, freshly fallen snow and capped by a glaring winter sun, Robert Frost was scheduled to read his newly composed poem, Dedication. The conditions, however, made it impossible for him to see the pages. So instead, he recited from memory an older verse, a poem he once said about what Madison may have thought. The land was ours before we were the lands. She was our land more than a 100 years before we were her people. She was ours in Massachusetts, in Virginia. But we were England's, still colonials, possessing what we still were unpossessed by, possessed by what we now no more possessed. Something we were withholding made us weak until we found out that it was ourselves we were withholding from our land of living and forthwith found salvation in surrender. Such as we were, we gave ourselves outright. The deed of gift was many deeds of war to the land vaguely realizing westward, but still unstoried, artless, unenhanced, such as she was, such as she would become. Frost's poem, The Gift Outright, calls to mind a time when the nation was unstoried, when the vision of what America would become was only an artless vision, a dream perhaps, in the mind of a young James Madison. There was a time long ago when the land was only the land, a mere possession of soil. But in surrender to the land, Frost says, we became her people. All through this poem, there is no they, but only and always we. Mingling the soil and the soul of America, Frost captures Madison's vision of a land populated by a self-governing people. The gift of the founding generation, Frost teaches us, made us true proprietors, owned by a land which calls us to own ourselves. The period of the American founding is one of the most remarkable and engrossing, engrossing stories of a nation's origins. 
Unlike the founding of the republics of antiquity, there was no single lawgiver who, after completing his work, retired to a distant land. There was instead a host of characters who played parts as actors, as Washington said, on a most conspicuous theater. Despite his unassuming nature, Madison played as large a part in the drama of the American founding as any of the founders, and a larger role, I think, than most of them. He was a lead thinker at the Constitutional Convention of 1787, and is, of course, considered the father of the United States Constitution. He co-authored the Federalist Papers, which Jefferson called the best commentary on the principles of government that ever was written. He served as Jefferson's Secretary of State, and, of course, he served two terms as America's fourth president. Still, Madison's role in the American founding is one thing, but what about Madison the man? Today there's a newfound interest in the American founders and who they really were and in what they're really like. Biographies on them have recently sold like hotcakes, and it's not unusual to be at a social gathering and hear someone talking about, say, McCullough's Adams or Chernoff's Hamilton. In fact, this just happened to me the other night when I was giving a talk at St. Joe's University. I was seated beside an engineer who said he always disliked history, but recently he's been reading Chernoff's Hamilton, and he's taken by it. Unlike the talkative John Adams or the brazen Hamilton, however, Madison was a frail and quiet fellow who often had to be asked to speak up so that others could hear him. His life was not... Uh, like Alexander Hamilton's, for example, quote, and this is Chernoff, so tumultuous and stuffed with high drama that only an audacious novelist could have dreamed it up, unquote. While he left behind a prolific set of writings, Madison's correspondence was not, like some of his contemporaries, crafted to be an open window on his life and his character. And did he, indeed, he did little, if anything, to construct a myth of himself for history. How then can we come to know James Madison? Dorothy L. Sayers once remarked that we are often not satisfied with coming to know great artists through their chosen form of self-revelation. Instead, we want to know them directly, to see directly into their souls. But this is not always possible, she warned. In the case of the writer, for example, we often come to know them better in the stories they told than in the stories that can be told about them. This, I think, is the way it was with Madison. Madison made a significant contribution in all the political posts he held, but it is in his capacity of political thinker that, that he made the deepest and most indelible impression on our nation. As much, and perhaps more than any of the founders, he thought through the original vision of, America, of the American Republic and worked to craft it into reality. Like many great artists who grasped the entire story in, the, in their mind before they put words onto pages, Madison wrote the story in his mind before it was written upon the land. In a sense, his story is the story of an idea, the idea of America. Like individuals, each nation has a particular character and a unique story. To tell the tale of a man or a country well, there needs to be a narrator who has the ability to see through the events and the details on the surface to the spirit that moves it and gives it its character. In the mind of the maker, 
Sayers brilliantly captures the forces at work behind the creation of a story. In the art of writing, just as in Christianity, she argues, there is a Trinitarian structure that underscores the work. This consists of the idea, the activity, and the power. I want to repeat that. The idea, the activity, and in the middle, the power. Behind the finished work and the activity that produced it is a creative idea that has has the power to set all else in motion. The power proceeds from the idea and the activity together and is the means by which the work is communicated to others. It's the link that connects the immaterial idea to the material manifestation and brings the work to life. It is, quote, the meaning of the work and its response in the lively soul, Sayers says. And then she goes on and she says, the power, or in other words, the spirit, is a social power that works to bring all minds into its own unity. This same structure, Sayers argues, is present in all forms of artistic creation and, in fact, in the very mind of man. There is, for example, a Trinitarian structure in human sight, which consists in the form seen, the act of vision, and the the mental attention or power which correlates the two. These things are as separable in theory as they are inseparably present in the experience of sight. They're separable in theory, but in the actual activity, they're inseparable. I would argue that this... The same threefold pattern is at work in political life, particularly in the creative act of founding a nation. What Sayers designates idea, activity, and power or spirit, Aristotle called principle, ethos, and spirit. To understand a given political order, Aristotle taught, we must look beyond the political surface of the laws and see that there is a distinctive ethos or way of life that characterizes it. This activity or way of life is informed by a particular principle or idea. Between the principle and the activity, there is a bridge that links them together, which we might call the spirit of the community. In free societies, this spirit finds expression in public opinion. This notion has been explored in our time by scholars such as Princeton's own Edward S. Corwin and A.D. Lindsay, who have argued for the importance of attending to the operative opinion that informs the political order and gives it life and force. According to Corwin, the regime or constitution in a formal sense is the, quote, nucleus of a set of ideas, unquote. The ideas that are at the nucleus of a constitution in the formal sense. To understand a nation, one must primarily concern himself, Lindsay argued, quote, with the ideas which are actually operative, operative enough in men's minds to make them go on obeying a particular form of government or, at times, to make them break up the government they are accustomed to and to try to construct a new one, unquote. This perspective on political life, I think, marked the mind of Madison. Madison's vision for America was grounded in the idea of self-government, which he sought to encompass and bring to life in the power of public opinion. This could not be accomplished, he believed, without the link that connects the idea of self-government 
to the ethos or way of life or activity of republicanism. Madison called this link the spirit of republican government, and that's his word. When released, this spirit is communicated to others through public opinion and results in certain intellectual and moral habits. It is a means by which the idea works a creative energy upon the citizens and generates a process of republican self-renewal. Now, such approach to an understanding of the human arts, whether that of writing or music or sculpture or politics, takes its bearings in a view of human nature and human life that is dynamic and in which the phenomenon cannot be properly treated by a purely scientific, mechanical approach that merely devises a solution to a problem. Indeed, not every challenge that we are faced with in life is a problem to be solved. Sometimes what is before us is the challenge of a work to be made. If we fail to recognize the power of an idea to inspire the souls and actions of human beings, we will not, I think, be able to understand the mind of Madison, no more than we would be able to understand a Washington or a Lincoln or a Churchill or the human beings who gave their lives in the wars over which they presided. This power is rooted in the nature of man. The essence of our nature is freedom, that is, freedom of the mind and the will, which is what allows for, indeed calls for, a creative idea that has the power to inspire and to guide it. This is the task of the creator, but is one which has certain natural laws and limits. A parent creates a child. A writer creates a character. A founder creates a nation. A people. But like the parent or writer, the founder can only have partial control over what he has created. If he is perceptive, he will recognize the essential freedom of the will of the characters he has formed. His own freedom consists in applying his energy to the form and limits of the medium within which he works so that it is not wrenched from the process of development that is natural to it. The business of the creator is not to escape from his material medium or to bully it, Sayers argues, but to serve it. And to serve it, he must love it. In the first of the Federalist Papers, devoted to the character of the new government, Madison described the material medium in which the framers worked and the cause which they served as he understood it. He said, quote, the genius of the people of America and the fundamental principles of the revolution demand Republican government. Only a genuine republic, he said, is reconcilable, quote, with that honorable determination that animates every votary of freedom to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government, unquote. So that honorable determination which motivates every votary of freedom to rest all our political experiments on the capacity of mankind for self-government. For Madison, to serve the cause of America meant to respect the freedom that cannot be taken from human beings without doing violence to their natures. To love the land and its people meant to trust in what they might become. This is the drama of self-government that Madison envisioned unfolding and wrapping back around the minds and spirits of the American people. In 1792, 
as Madison's opposition to the Federalist administration of government in defense of what he called the Republican cause intensified, he penned an article for the National Gazette entitled Spirit of Governments. In this party press essay, he took up the central notion of Montesquieu's great work, The Spirit of the Laws, agreeing with Montesquieu that the principle and spirit of each governmental type is critical to understanding political things. While, quote, and these are Madison's words, no government is perhaps reducible to a sole principle of operation, unquote. Madison argued, since most include a mixture of different principles that influence their administration, still, as Montesquieu taught, it is useful to analyze the various types of government and, quote, to characterize them by the spirit which predominates in each, unquote. Now, Montesquieu had divided governments into three different types, uh, despotism, monarchies, and republics, and based on three different principles, despotism based on fear, monarchy based on honor, and republics, of which there are two types, but all based on virtue. He then proceeded to identify a new governmental type, that is, the British Constitution, which is perhaps a fourth type of regime, or at the very least, a new kind of republic. In Spirit of Governments, Madison takes up Montesquieu's project of identifying the prevailing principle and spirit of the various kinds of, of, of governments. Like Montesquieu, he develops uh, a three-part category. But his classification, interestingly, is not the same as Montesquieu's. What does Madison mean by the Spirit of Governments? Why does he disagree with Montesquieu's classification? Madison's first type of government is characterized by a spirit of submission, which predominates in political orders that he says operate by a permanent military force. His second type of government, quote, substitutes the motive of private interest in the place of public duty and accommodates the avarice of the few rather than the benefit of the whole. This governmental type, Madison says, is an imposter and its boasted liberty of the many but a ruse. Although Madison does not name Great Britain explicitly, he is clearly implicating, I think, the English model in this description, registering his disagreement with Montesquieu's praise of the British model. In Madison's view, the British Constitution did not deserve the name Republic. In contrast, Madison presented his third type of government, which he says derives, quote, its energy from the will of the society and operates by the reason of its measures on the understanding and interest of the society. Such, and listen to this, this is Madison. This is the quiet Madison who sometimes gets so confounded in logic, right, Wyatt and Christian, that you're trying to figure out what he means. He's got every possible contingent there. Usually Madison is not poetic. This is Madison. This government that derives the will of its energy from the will of the society and operates by the reason of its, member, uh, reason of its measures on the understanding and interests of the society. Such is the government for which philosophy has been searching and humanity sighing from the most remote ages. Such are the Republican governments which it is the glory of America to have invented and her unrivaled happiness to possess. Goes on to say it's lucky that, that this is on this side of the Atlantic, implying that it's not on 
the other side of the Atlantic where uh, the Britain that Montesquieu praises so much is located. As, Ma as Madison argued again and again throughout the 80s and the 90s, 1780s and 1790s, in a genuine republic, the will of the government is dependent on the will of the society, and the will of the society is dependent on the reason of the society. In Federalist 51, for example, he claimed that the extent and structure of the government of the United States make it dependent on the will of the society. It's not a government independent of the will of the people. It's dependent on the will of the society. In the 49th Federalist Paper, he declared that it is the reason of the public that ought to sit in judgment on public measures. In the party press essays, he places this motif at, motif at center stage, encapsulating it in the idea of the sovereignty of public opinion. Public opinion, he declared in 1791, quote, sets bounds to every government and is a real sovereign in every free one. Let me repeat that because I think this is at the central, at the center of Madison's uh, theory. Public opinion sets bounds to every government and is the real sovereign in every free one. Derived from the will of the society, public opinion is a result of a process of communication and deliberation which refines, enlarges, and modifies the will of the society to become the reason of the society. In turn, the reason of the society operates on the understanding and interest of the society. So it's, it's a back and forth, almost a, psych, uh, a cyclical influence. In Madison's conception, public opinion is not, as it's generally thought today, a mere aggregate of the popular and fleeting views of the people. Rather, it's the result of the citizens' quote, communication of their opinions, unquote, through a political process designed to moderate the claims of the participants and instill in them a sense of the conditions of freedom. Public opinion is a tangible expression of the predominant spirit of the society. It links the way of life of a people to the animating principle of their political order. And it's the power upon which the preservation or destruction of the polity's constitution, small c, ultimately depends. In Spirit of Governments, Madison paid tribute to Montesquieu's recovery of a conception of politics that recognizes a primary place for the non-mechanistic institutions of go on government, i.e., that recognizes that the stability and character of a government depend in the final analysis on the spirit of the Constitution or government. Quote, and this is Madison, the portion of truth blended with the uh, uh, ingeniousness of Montesquieu's system of regime classification sufficiently justifies the admiration bestowed on him. He lifted the veil from the venerable errors which enslaved opinion and pointed the way to those luminous truths of which he had but a glimpse himself, unquote. What Montesquieu overlooked, according to Madison, was the way in which re the Republican government for which philosophy had been searching and humanity sighing from the most remote ages could actually be achieved in the modern era. I think we see the, the, the sort of poetry um, uh, in the flair in that expression by Madison because he believes he has actually found 
the answer that will make Republican government viable in our world. Montesquieu learned from the classics, particularly Aristotle, the paramount importance of the spirit of the Constitution. But he failed to see how the spirit of Republican liberty could be the operative principle, the operative principle of the Republican form. Thus, Montesquieu sacrificed the principle and spirit of Republicanism, substituting in their place a constitutional structure which channels private interests to achieve the end of liberty. He gives up on the idea of an operative principle of liberty and substitutes in their place uh, institutional arrangements to achieve the end of liberty. Madison rejected Montesquieu's solution of institutional arrangements as a surrogate for the liberty of the citizen and the sovereignty of public opinion. Indeed, he believed he could see beyond Montesquieu's theory to a way in which Republican citizens could be educated and habituated in the spirit of popular government without sacrificing the principle of the citizens' liberties. Well, he accepted Montesquieu's doctrine of the separation of power as a necessary security against tyranny, he did not think it a sufficient condition for free government. Madison's goal was more ambitious, I would argue, than Montesquieu's. He sought to preserve not merely the form, but also the spirit of popular government. In his analysis of the British, uh, British Constitution in the National Gazette essay, Madison argued that stability and liberty are not secured by limiting the share of, a pe of the people to a third of the government and then counteracting their influence by two great hereditary orders with conflicting and hostile feelings and habits and interests or by any simulation of the British model of class warfare or party contestation. In fact, he claimed the, quote, boasted equilibrium, unquote, of the British Constitution, as far as it's true, is not primarily due to, quote, the form in which its powers are distributed and balanced, is not primarily due to that. Montesquieu got it wrong. Rather, it is primarily owing, quote, and these are Madison's words, to the force of public opinion, unquote. In his published essays, Madison leaves the argument uh, at this level of analysis. However, in a set of notes, which I'm going to call the Notes on Government, that I think he wrote in the spring of 1791, which are a philosophically comprehensive and detailed set of outline notes, uh, uh, which he wrote during the break between the First and Second Congresses, parts of which serve as a basis for the National Gazette or Party Press Essays. Party press essays. He connected this issue with a classical analysis of the problem of faction or stasis, and the theory of the cycle of regimes. He says theoretical writers, such as Plato in the Republic, and more practical ones, such as Jonathan Swift, have argued that there is a natural cycle in government from monarchy to aristocracy to democracy back to monarchy. However, Madison continued, and I'm quoting him here, it appears from Aristotle that under the influence of public opinion, the rotation was very different in some of the states of Greece. It appears from Aristotle, Madison wrote, that under the influence of public opinion, this can change the whole theory of the cycle of regimes. There's more at work here. 
Madison's reference to Aristotle's understanding of the force of public opinion shows his disagreement with those who claim that this idea of public opinion is uh, a modern invention. I think Madison had in mind here one of the uh, writers in the Encyclopédie Methodique, Jacques Pouchot, who, uh, who makes that very claim. I think he also had in mind here John Adams, and particularly Adams's analysis of Republican government and his defense of the constitutions of the government of the United States of America. Volumes one and three of Adams' work that Madison took with him to Philadelphia in the fall of 1790. And then he's writing these notes a few months later. Adams acknowledged that some of the classical philosophers did put place a primary reliance on the education of citizens and the formation of character in order to reduce factional conflict and prevent degeneracy of the political order. This might be effective in small communities, Adams argued, quote, but the education of a great nation can never accomplish so great an end. In a nation of millions, Adams wrote, no principles, no sentiments derived from edu education can restrain them from trampling on the laws, unquote. The only security, Adams said, is to establish, quote, orders of men watching and balancing each other. Power must be opposed to power, interest to interest, unquote. Moreover, Adams continued, that according to Plato and Swift, there's a natural rotation of governmental forms. Even though Plato did not delineate the various orders of men and establish a balance between them, this is Adams, he nonetheless inferred the necessity of orders and equiposes by his commitment to the rule of law and his demonstration of the problem of degeneration in every simple species of government. So, according to Adams, Plato endorsed this idea of separating men into different orders and balancing them out to create an equilibrium in government. Adams continues, looking at Aristotle's critique of Plato. That's in uh, Aristotle's Politics in Book 5, Chapter 12. And here's Adams' analysis of that. Whether these observations of Aristotle upon Plato be all just or not, they only serve to strengthen our argument, in other words, Adam's argument, by showing the mutability of simple governments in a fuller light. Not denying any of the charges stated by Plato, he, meaning Aristotle, only enumerates a multitude of other changes to which such governments are liable. And therefore, this is Adam's interpretation of Aristotle, Aristotle too shows the greater necessity of mixtures of different orders and decisive balances to preserve mankind from those horrible calamities which revolutions always bring with them. So Aristotle, too, according to Adams, strengthens Adams' theory of, balance, uh, of establishing balances and orders in government to establish equipoise. In the notes on government, Madison implicitly takes issue with Adams' flawed reading of classical political thought, and particularly with his superficial reading of Aristotle. In the passage at Politics, uh, Book 5, Chapter 12, which Madison explicitly cites in these notes on government, Aristotle argued that contrary to Socrates' assertion in the Republic, there is no simple theory or fixed pattern of regime rotation. 
There are many causes of stasis in government, Aristotle argued, just as there are numerous factors that tend toward the preservation of a political order. One critically important factor determining the longevity or change of regimes, he taught, is public opinion. In a multi-volume work by Jean-Jacques Bartholomew entitled Voyage of the Young Anacharsis in Greece, which was published in, in France in 1789 and sent by Madison to Jefferson shortly after its release, Bartholomew devoted the whole of Chapter 62 to an explication of Aristotle's politics and particularly to the causes of regime preservation and destruction. And Bartholomew says in some notes that he spent over a year putting this particular chapter together. The whole work is in eight volumes, and it took him 30 years to write this. When it came out, it made a huge splash all across Europe, so much so that in Paris there were parties given with the Anacharsis theme where people would dress up in togas, and go and eat, I suppose, feta cheese or something, all kinds of Greek cuisine. Well, Jefferson sends these volumes to Madison shortly after their release. Madison spent weeks, perhaps months, I think probably at least a couple months, reading, studying, and taking notes on Bartholomew's work. Bartholomew says this, quote, the most absolute authority becomes lawful, if the subjects consent to establish or support it, unquote, in his interpretation of Aristotle's politics. By gaining the confidence of the people, Aristotle demonstrated in Book 5, Chapter 12, that even some tyrannies have subsisted a longer time than is usually the case because the rulers were able to obtain, quote, the esteem and confidence of the people, unquote. This was the case, Bartholomew said, interpreting Aristotle, because of the fundamental political fact that, quote, the part of the city that wants the regime to continue must be superior to the part not wanting it, unquote. The conclusion that Bartholomew drew from his study of Aristotle in the classics was that, quote, the unanimous decision of legislators and philosophers of all the Greeks and perhaps of all nations was that, quote, the solid foundation of the tranquility and happiness of the states are to be found in institutions which form the citizens and give activity to their minds and in the public voice when it makes, makes an exact uh, distribution of contempt and esteem, unquote. Impotent in themselves, the laws are empowered only by the force of public morality. The difference, Bartholomew wrote, in the mirrors of a people is sufficient to destroy the best of, the constitu best of constitutions or to rectify the most effective. For Moors restrain the citizen by the fear of public opinion, unquote. Like Montesquieu, Bartholomew thus understood the central task Aristotle had assigned to students of politics. He says it this way, quote, to penetrate to the spirit of the laws and to follow them in their effects. He did not, however, that is, Bartholomew did not, however, adopt Montesquieu's reformulation of Aristotle's task. The greatest of all things that have been mentioned with a view to making regimes lasting is education relative to the regime, Aristotle wrote at Politics 5, Chapter 9. Quote, for there is no benefit in the most beneficial laws, even when these have been approved by all those engaging in politics, if they are not, if the people are not going to be habituated and educated in the regime famous line from Aristotle's politics. 
um, talking about the absolute necessity of education and habituation in the principles and spirit of the regime. This requires Aristotle to attention to the regime or spirit of the Constitution. Quote, if the laws are popular, the citizens must be educated and habituated in a popular spirit, if oligarchic, in an oligarchic spirit, unquote. This is the case, Aristotle believed, because all laws depend on the regime, on the Constitution. That is, on that which permeates the political order and gives it its ethos or character. Political analyses which proffer the rule of law as a solution to the political problem evade the central issue because laws never simply rule. Because laws never simply rule. In every political order, law is a product of human legislators. In every regime, the rulers have a particular view of justice, whether the oligarchic view, the democratic view, a blend of these views, and so on. The question of the fundamental opinion on which the society rests is always primary, Aristotle taught. The question of that fundamental opinion is always the primary political question. In every political order, there's an operative opinion about justice that exists beneath the laws and which is a manifestation of the spirit of the polity. In free governments, this spirit is expressed in public opinion. In Aristotle's political philosophy, spirit is the power which connects the unmoving principle or idea of the regime and the active way of life of the citizens. In much the same way that in Aristotle's biology, pneuma, or spirit, is the link between the soul of animals, including human beings, and the motion of animals. I find this connection between Aristotle's biology, between this, the, the, the unmoved and that which moves in the material world is connected by this idea of spirit. Um, very interesting, and in fact, in his, his work, Motion of Animals, he makes an analogy. He says, if animals move properly, including human beings, because he says, like the arm, there's a part that doesn't move and a part that moves, and you have to figure out how that happens. He says, well, it happens at the joint. Now, in the whole animal, the human being, I mean, that isn't located there. There's not self-movement in the joint, but it is in the entire human being. There's a kind of self-movement um, where the unmoved idea ends up into activity, action. And he says, if we do this correctly, we, if we move correctly, we'll be like a well-regulated commonwealth. We will be like that, not vice versa in terms of the unmoved and the moved and the spirit that connects the two. Madison's focus on Aristotle's conception of the political task and Bartholomew's explication of this stemmed from his sustained effort to find an effective remedy for the problem of faction or stasis in popular government. And I would argue as well from his commitment to preserving both the form and the spirit of popular government. In all free governments, he argued, public opinion is a real sovereign and predominant authority, whose refinement and enlargement is the most important consideration of the Republican lawgiver, statesman, and also of the civic literati. Madison accepted Aristotle's analysis that the character of each political order 
is fundamentally determined by the spirit and opinion of the citizens or of the greater part of the citizens that constitute it. Madison's theory of republicanism was, as he indicated in the notes on government and the party press essays, a direct response to the challenge Aristotle articulated and Montesquieu reformulated. He cites, he cites both of them throughout these notes. He accepted the terms of Aristotle's challenge, I would argue, and adopted Montesquieu's doctrine of separation of powers as a partial response to the challenge Aristotle laid out. He believed, however, that neither Aristotle nor Montesquieu had fully met the challenge. In classical times, the means of communication within society were essentially limited to the spoken word, thereby confining the operation of public opinion in a republic to a small territory. As a result, the ease of communication made the problem of stasis or faction an ever-present danger. Aristotle's response to the problem lacked the institutional uh, prescriptions and precautions that, Arist that Montesquieu would recommend. But Montesquieu's solution failed to attend to the fact that there's always a prevailing opinion in free societies which cannot be controlled merely by a resort to political mechanics. I think it's in the interstice between these two theories that Madison developed his own unique contribution to the theory of Republican government. He utilized Montesquieu's method for the preservation of liberty of the Constitution and at the same time reclaimed the Aristotelian political task that took seriously the liberty of the citizen and the need for civic education in the spirit of the regime. He accomplished this, he believed, by rethinking the question of the size of the territory in a new age of communication. As was always understood, it's more difficult for a people to communicate their views in a large territory or an empire. This combined with separation of powers and checks and balances is favorable to the prevention of majority tyranny. It is, however, unfavorable to liberty. This is Madison's analysis. Madison followed up on this problem and took the argument to the next step. The advent of new means of communication, he argued, makes possible a quote, and these are his words, commerce of ideas, unquote, throughout an extensive nation. Communication and deliberation among the representatives at the level of government, between the citizens and their representatives back and forth, and among the entire body of the people, and those are Madison's words again, among the entire body of the people, via such things as newspapers circulating throughout the nation, can act, in Madison's view, to modify the will of the society into a reasonable will, a reason of the public. These avenues of communication act as equivalents to a contraction of the territorial limits and favor liberty in a large republic. Still, the task of forming a majority or public opinion in a large republic is much more difficult than it is in a small one. It requires significant time and energy and necessarily involves a process of deliberation to which the representatives and the citizens' views are subjected. Madison thus utilizes the factor of the size of the territory to control the problem of faction, and in conjunction with modern modes and means of communication, he employs the same factor of territorial size 
to promote the formation of a deliberate and reasonable public, public opinion and to achieve self-government in a Republican polity. The extension of territory, representation, separation of powers, checks and balances, and federalism are all part of Madison's Republican theory. But I think they're leitmotifs compared to his grand narrative of self-government. The success of the experiment in self-government, he believed, requires the establishment of a dynamic process of communication that both favors liberty and promotes self-control. This is nothing less than civic education, albeit civic education in a free Republican society, which includes not only the influence of the laws and of the, and of the official representatives on the views of the people, but also reserves a significant role for the enlightened private citizen, or what we today might call the public intellectual. Example, Robert George. In fact, Madison argued the literati have a particularly critical role in refining public opinion in a republic. They are, quote, the cultivators of the human mind, the manufacturers of useful knowledge, the agents of the commerce of ideas, the censors of public manners, the teachers of the arts of life and the means of happiness, unquote. The commerce of ideas is the process through which public opinion is cultivated and manufactured in Madison's Republic. It's the means by which the spirit of the nation is released and its energy communicated to others. It is, in Sayer's formulation, quote, a social power that works to bring all minds into its unity, unquote. Public morality and law constantly reshape themselves within the boundaries set by public opinion. Majority opinion is ever in the process of reconstructing itself within its perimeters. Public opinion is a social power that can revitalize the Republican idea within the minds and souls of the citizens and fortify the nerve that links the ethos and the aspirations of Republican self-government. Now, this is not the interpretation of Madison that you would normally read. But it is, as I mentioned at the beginning, Frost, Robert Frost's understanding of Madison. In 1956, Robert Frost delivered a talk to the graduating class of Sarah Lawrence College, choosing as his themes liberty and self-government. I've never particularly valued the, the freedom that's conferred on me, he remarked. I value myself on the liberties I take, and I've learned to appreciate the word unscrupulous. There's a certain measure of unscrupulousness in bending a, a story one is telling, Frost argued. For example, in not being a sticker at trifles. I do not mean you should lie, Frost said. That's corruption. But you should leave out what you don't want to say. Like Toynbee, when he writes about the history of the world, you know, he leaves Vermont out. <laughs> unscrupulous. Frost believed we should be especially unscrupulous in our thinking. Too much uncertainty is just so much timidity. There are some questions that we pick up in college or along the way that are worth picking up again and again for the rest of our lives. We should treat them like knitting, Frost said, that we pick up at odd moments. We should pick them up not in a spirit of uncertainty, but to knit about, as if you were knitting your brow. To have ideas about, Frost said. I don't mean just to opinionate about, 
just to have a pro or con, not just having your nose counted. No, I mean things you form ideas about. That's something more, Frost said. One of the things I've been knitting about lately, Frost told his audience, is this thing called the dream. It gets thrown in my face every now and again, and always by someone who doesn't believe it has come true. When I pick it up, Frost said, quote, I wonder what the dream is or why. And the next time I pick it up, I wonder who dreamed it. Did Tom Paine dream it? Did Thomas Jefferson dream it? Did George Washington dream it? Governor Morse? Lately, I've decided, Frost said, that the best dreamer of it was Madison. You see, I've been reading the Federalist Papers lately, he said, and I wonder if Madison's dream is a dream for us today and for future generations, or has it gone by? Quote, can we treat the Constitution as if it were something gone by? Can we interpret it out of existence, unquote? Does it mean something different every day, Frost asks, until it wouldn't mean anything at all to James Madison? In the course of his address at Sarah Lawrence College, Frost recited two of his favorite poems, The Gift Outright and Birches. We've talked about The Gift Outright, which Frost once remarked was a poem about what Madison may have thought. He puts this together in this address at Sarah Lawrence College with this little poem called Birches. It's just seemingly about a young boy in New England climbing up birch trees. I should prefer to have some boy bend the birches and ride them down and take the stiffness out, Frost wrote in Birches. A boy who learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon and so not carrying the tree clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the pains you use to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Then he flung himself outward, feet first and with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So was I once myself a swinger of, ver of birches, Frost admitted, and so I dream of going back to be. I think of climbing black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven till the tree could bear no, bear no more, but dipped its top and set me down again, unquote. The boy who swung on birches knew just far how, how far he could bend the tree until it could bear no more. He was spirited in his climb up, but he always knew the measure. He knew not to launch out too soon and bring the tree to its knees, but to let it dip and set him down gently. Madison's dream, like the New England boys, was a dream of ascent into freedom. It was, it was a dream not so much of liberty conferred as of liberties to be taken. He challenged Americans, in Frost's understanding, to climb to the top with poise and then to launch out feet first and with a swish. He encouraged us to use our freedom to form ideas, not just to have opinions pro and con, but to craft ideas and knit them into the broadcloth of the public mind. Frost knew that he himself was a bit of a rebel, perhaps even an unscrupulous Democrat, but he always respected the measure. Measure reassures me, Frost said in the same address at Sarah Lawrence College. Measure reassures me 
Now I know, I think I know as of today, what Madison's dream was. It was just a dream of a new land to fill with people in self-control. In self-control, in self-control, Frost said, that is all through Madison's thinking. Madison's dream, quote, was to occupy the land with character. That's another way to put it, to occupy a new land with character, unquote. Frost admired the boy who climbed the white birch as high as he could, but who knew not to launch out too soon or to bring the tree to its knees. Like filling a cup to the brim. Have you ever done that? Where you can actually fill it to the brim and actually above the brim without it spilling over. Frost offers these vignettes to show us the point of conjunction between freedom and self-control. In these plain, even homely illustrations, he teaches us the meaning of self-government. Self-government is the idea that makes the land we call America something more than the land. It is the spirit that makes us who we are, and it, and it is the measure of what we can become. Thank you. The, uh, the floor is open. If uh, any undergraduates or graduate students would like to uh, begin with a question, you have priority. Any of our... Uh, yes, uh, you, sir. Um, professor, um, you suggest that Madison you know, puts uh, his primary faith in this uh, spirit of Republican liberty being within public opinion. But how does he propose the spirit be promoted or maintained within if it is to be the final guarantee of the Well, he talks about a number of ways that, that this would happen. Can you hear that? Yes, the important thing is that it be picked up. Uh, and he talks about these at some length, and um, I think you remember Wyatt in his article called Public Opinion, and as well as in Federalist 14, he talks about modes of communication. Um, he wants better transportation routes, roads, so that, that travel is easier, communication is improved. Newspapers, he says, cir circulating throughout the great body of the American people. Who's writing in the newspapers? Well, anyone can, but, but essentially what he calls the literati, who are attempting to form public opinion. Um, he wants communication between the representatives and the people back and forth to deliberate on these kinds of questions. In other words, by self-government, he actually means just that, that in the end, there is no guarantee. We have to try to succeed in this experiment of seeing whether a people is truly capable of governing themselves. Uh, yes, uh, Professor McCall. Professor Shaheen, I'd like to follow up on the first question just a bit further. Uh, to ask you to link up how Madison's view of public opinion works in relation to liberty and diversity of opinion in Federalist 10, what I guess we call today political pluralism. Uh, thank you, Kathy. That's an, an excellent question. Uh, Madison argues in the notes on government, which form the basis of these party press essays, that in fact, um, this question that he's dealing with in the Federalist Papers, oh, well, he cites the Federalist Papers there, and then he argues uh, um, what needs to be done is a more thorough investigation, particularly into this question not just of an equilibrium in government that people like 
by implication, he seems to be pointing to people like Adams, um, seem to want to rely on as the, as the way to preserve liberty and guarantee rights. But we need to think through even more than obviously he had done, because we need more of an investigation. This idea of an equilibrium of the passions and interests in society. And then he argues, Kathy, that um, he implies that somebody has, got, has misunderstood either the way Republican government works and possibly even misunderstood his theory. Who knows, maybe in the 10th Federalist. That, that the idea of multiplying parties in society he says, is not the Republican way. What you do is you try to the extent possible accommodate the views of parties, if they can be. And if they can't be, then those existing parties, you play off from each other to create that equilibrium. But he says, this doesn't mean that you should create hereditary orders or even mimic that through rivalries in society. He says, that would be like an ethics to say we ought to promote more vices so that there'll be more vices counteracting each other. And Madison says, if this is not the language of reason, it is that of republicanism. So I think he's looking back there at his theory in the Federalist uh, papers, particularly Federalist number 10. And these notes are incredibly comprehensive. They're notes, I think, for a comprehensive treatise on government. If he completed this work with all of these weeks and months that he spent doing it, full of citations, to text. Um, I think his plan or his hope was uh, to lay this out fully, his view of republicanism, fearing that it was being misunderstood that, that this idea of just promoting parties or factions somehow was the solution, the republican solution, sort of mimicking the English model. And he's very clear in these notes and party press essays so I think you can follow that back to the Federalist Papers as well, that that is not his view of republicanism. And if anybody thinks that that's his view, he thinks he's been misunderstood. Yes, uh, Evan Austin. Um, sort of a continuation of the last question in a way. I'm wondering if you could say a little more about um, Madison's view of representation and how it relates to the translation of public opinion. Because he's often either paraded as some kind of elitist That's an excellent question, Evan, because um, Madison is, I don't think he's either, uh, you know, the theory that says he's a classical Republican in, in the sense of um, setting up a government of these elite individuals who will then take care of things, where they're sort of just um, the trustee theory, for example, of representation, nor is he in favor of instruction, obviously. He's somewhere in the middle, and he explains his view briefly, and we have to sort of tease that out and figure out what he means, in this article in 1791 entitled Public Opinion, in which he says, what is the respect that government owes the opinions of the people? He raises that question, and he says, well, when public opinion is not fixed, it may be influenced by the government. When it is fixed, it must be obeyed by the government. And he says, if, if we would attend to that distinction, we have much less question about uh, the respect that government owes public opinion. 
So if you put that together, Evan, with this idea of the extension of the territory and how difficult it is to form public opinion through this extension of the territory, more people, more land, and also because of, the, because of distrust. When you have dishonorable motives, Madison says, um, you tend to check yourself in how much you want to spread those motives. Um, you don't tend to check yourself if, you're, if you don't think your motives are dishonorable. So that's one of the ways that you, that you put stops, obstacles in the way of faction, but not in the way of a public opinion that's not factious. So there's quite a bit of room there, it looks to me, quite a bit of play for representatives to influence the opinions of the people, which would mean that he gives them the job of statesmanship in that classical sense of a kind of, of civic education. At the same time, they are not left with a final decision. Public opinion, he says, sets bounds to every government and is the real sovereign in every free one. So when settled, government has to obey their dictates. got the term from his reading of um, some of the French thinkers at the time who are developing this whole theory of public opinion. Um, they use the phrase l'opinion publique and they also use the phrase um, about public reason but you actually find this in Montesquieu as well um, talking about uh, uh, the reason of the public. So I think actually the French writers look back to Montesquieu but they're trying to go beyond Montesquieu and create this theory of public opinion which Madison agrees to some extent, but then disagrees with people like Condorcet and others in terms of how they want to make this into um, a kind of scientific rationality. Uh, Madison disagrees with that in Federalist 49, and he continues, I think, throughout his life. Public, the reason of the public for Madison is not the same as philosophical truth or wisdom. Um, it's kind of what, what, some, what one uh, commentator on Montesquieu talks about is impure reason. Public opinion is, in, in Federalist 49, Madison argues, um, uh, look, you can't expect all the people to be a nation of philosophical kings wished for by Plato. And so a rational government will not find it superfluous to have the prejudices of the community on its side. At the same time, in that same essay, he talks about how it is the reason of the public that ought to sit in judgment on the measures of government. So it's somewhere between this idea of wisdom, uh, not expecting wisdom of the people, but still placing quite a, a heavy reliance on the opinions of the people seems to be what might be called a certain understanding of enlightenment, enlightened reason, which isn't philosophical wisdom, but nonetheless is maybe salutary opinion. Does that answer?
Well, he's for representation, absolutely. So he's, but I, I actually will go out a limb, on a limb and say this. I might just as well since I've said it before, right, Alan? Um, in, a, in, in an exchange that Alan and I had. I think Madison is more uh, of an unhesitating Democrat than he's generally thought to be. But I mean that in principle, uh, representative democracy. So, I mean, all of that's true about the obstacles he wants in the way of forming a majority opinion. But he uses those obstacles to refine and enlarge the public views, to modify the sovereignty of public opinion. He finds this, for him, this is what he finds is the way that, you know, the will of the majority, here's Jefferson, the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, but that will to be rightful must be reasonable. Jefferson follows along with this theory of public opinion. He, he talks about it more later on in his life after I think he's listening more to Madison. Um, he doesn't work it out in the way that Madison does, I, I don't think. But I think they're basically in some amount of agreement on that, though it's Madison who tries to work that out through this extension of territory, these institutional arrangements, but those are not there simply for their own sake. And they're not there just to prevent majority rule or create a ghostly body politic. They're also there to as um, a process that encourages a process of deliberation so that public opinion can be, as he says in Federalist Number 10, refined and enlarged. And that's what he gives the name of public reason to. Um, thank you, Alan. I don't know if you all heard the yeah, question. So can you repeat the question? Sure. Um, Professor Gibson is asking, Madison has this idea of the modification of the sovereignty that he talks about in a 1787 piece called Vices of the Political System of the United States. And Professor Gibson is asking, um, why is that necessarily the modification of public opinion in a regime? And even if it is, how does that work? to refine and enlarge the public views? Why couldn't it lead to, for example, a kind of corrupt public opinion that isn't any better than what you'd have perhaps in a direct democracy? Well, um, Professor Gibson and I have been talking about this question, which I think is critical in Madison's thought. What does he mean by the sovereignty of public opinion? What does he mean by the modification of the sovereignty in this 1787 vices of the political system? Because because he says there and in a letter to Washington that this is the great desideratum to so modify the sovereignty that what you achieve is a dispassionate and disinterested umpire. I understand what Madison means by the modification of the sovereignty to be the modification of public opinion. That is of the people's views themselves, not just at the level of government in the House of Representatives and in the Senate and through the legislative process, but
but ultimately affecting the very way people think and the way they view things, modifying um, what Tocqueville will later call and what some of the French thinkers Madison is reading are calling mores, habits of the heart and of the mind. Not an enlightened philosophical wisdom, but patterns of thought, ways of thinking, ways of viewing things, things that we love, things that we cherish, things that we denigrate. How is that going on in, in, in Madison's system? And why will this lead to a republic, uh, renewal of the Republican spirit and not to a corruption of it? Well, there's no guarantee that it will. There's absolutely. Here's what I think is a possible defense of it. If, public, if it's hard to form a majority or public opinion in this large country with all these kinds of obstacles, uh, the multiplicity of interests and sex and so on, it make it hard for people to find places of agreement. Isn't it just as hard, if it's hard to form a majority faction, isn't it just as hard to form a just majority? What favors the latter and works against the former? Well, one of the things, uh, I think there are two things essentially in Madison's argument. One is how distrust works. He has a psychology of shame that he talks about. That if you have dishonorable motives, you are going to distrust other people, so not be as likely to want to communicate your views to a very wide audience. It's sort of like the mafia. You know, the people at the top, they don't want to communicate to too many people what their motives are. Um, people don't feel that kind of hesitation, Madison thinks, if their motives are honorable. Then the more people take, that know and that they can. So he thinks that extending the size of the territory in and of itself has a certain way that it works against the formation of majority factions. It's still going to be hard to form a just majority but it doesn't have quite all those same obstacles. What else does it have in its favor? Madison thinks that the, the process of communication, of people talking, a sort of Socratic method at the public level, has a tendency, you know, through free argument and debate, to help bring to the surface um, views that are more reasonable and more just. Now, is there any guarantee to that? No, that's of course the ultimate challenge um, of trying to uh, bring this experiment of self-government to a successful operation. If it does work that way, however, it then has an effect. Public opinion has this, it's this sort of constant effect on the laws and the laws and the measures of government to have an effect back again on public opinion. Look, a lot of scholars who write on this whole idea of public opinion, particularly on the French, argue that this is a very nice abstract concept, but it doesn't mean anything. Politicians just bring this up to say, public opinion agrees with me, um, but really they're talking about just what they want public opinion to think. And it's so amorphous that it's an invisible, that it probably really doesn't exist. That's what most of the writers on, this, on the French view in the 18th century say about the theory of public opinion. But it's not that many years later, Tocqueville talks about it, and when people read Democracy in America, they think that public opinion Tocqueville's talking about is real. And Tocqueville sees problems with it. Madison sees difficulties, I think, with it too. But that's why this whole process of civic education 
from the laws, between the representatives of the people, and through public expressions in the media become so critical to him. Some of these ideas are, are buried back in Hume's essays too. Hume uses that phrase, commerce of ideas. He doesn't develop it, but it's there in Hume's writings. I wonder if you could just go a little bit further when you're talking about civic education and representatives and molding of public opinion or modifying public opinion, what is the role of the court? I mean, one can see someone like Oliver Wendell Holmes saying free marketplace of ideas. One can see the Justice Breyer's idea of active liberty. And then you can see the more restricted sense, the liberalist, as, as Breyer refers to him. And this idea is, is the Constitution a fixed proposition within public opinion that has to be followed, or is there something, is it more organic and, and open to modification? What would Madison, or what's your position? Uh, Wyatt and Christian, would you like to answer this question? Come on down. <laughs> we were just talking about this question in precept today. Um, and when Madison defends his uh, his rechartering of the Bank of the United States, uh, in 1817, he does this later on in this letter he writes in 1831. He tries to explain his view on this. It's a very complex letter. And we spent some time in precept today trying to, to figure it out. My read on this ultimately is, um, and let me just step back to, to sort of try to answer your question in, in a broader way. You know, Breyer, I think it's in his Tanner lectures, he gets Madison right in terms of interpreting Madison in a, in a broader sense of caring about the cultivation of the character of the people. But I think he gets Madison wrong in thinking that Madison thought that the Constitution should change and, and so on with precedence and change. I mean, Madison, I think, was the original originalist. Um, Madison is absolutely uh, committed to the idea of originalism for the following reason. So much so that those who ratified the Constitution, um, that, that that's the most fundamental expression of public opinion in Madison's view, the ratification of the Constitution. And that's a reflection of popular sovereignty. And without that, that's why he works to have ratification take place the way it does under the new Constitution rather than by the states, the way it was done under the Articles of Confederation. Because that's the only way to be true to the principles of the Declaration of Independence that calls for um, that government is legitimate or illegitimate depending on whether it's um, based on the consent of the governed. Consent of the governed, ratification of the Constitution is in Madison's mind the only legitimate basis for the government. Now he's concerned about some things because there's this institution of slavery out there and other things that are working against that principle. Still, in terms of the, the time period, to the extent possible, he wants um, delegates chosen expressly by the people for that purpose that represents to him the most fundamental source of public opinion. Um, so. Even legislative precedents can't override that. The Constitution is primary in Madison's mind. Why does he change his mind on the bank? Decide, think it's unconstitutional in 1791 and then in uh, 1817 go ahead and agree to recharter it? Not because legislative precedents trump the Constitution, which is the argument most scholars argue, 
that, well, he's an originalist, except not always. Sometimes legislative precedents trump it, trump the very Constitution. And in that sense, unlike, say, a Clarence Thomas, he doesn't want to move the precedent, precedents in such a way, for example, like the Commerce Clause, back to the original understanding. Um, I don't think that's Madison's argument at all. I think what he's saying is, look, I changed my mind on the constitutionality of the bank because I misunderstood public opinion in 1791. I got it wrong. There wasn't this huge outpouring by the public of a usurpation of power. You know, I listened to the people at the convention um, in terms of, you know, the question of incorporation, and I thought I had it then. But it's public opinion. The, those who ratified the Constitution, that's primary. Not those who framed, but those who ratified the Constitution. The sovereignty of the people, that's what's primary for Madison. The Constitution's nothing but a dead letter, even after they framed it in Philadelphia until life is breathed into it by the authority of the American people. So he thinks he got it wrong. You can look back at 91, 92, 93, 94, 95. The people aren't arguing. There's, there's no public outcry that, that this is a, any kind of usurpation of government, of, of powers of the national government. So, so is it a silence implies consent view? Well, I think he read the silence of the public as implying that they didn't have a problem with its constitutionality. Yeah. So it was a question of deferring to popular constitutional interpretation. He himself, as he read the document and understood it against its historical backdrop, went one way. Mm -hmm. But since the people, as interpreters of the Constitution, went the other way, he deferred mm -hmm. to their, that's it? And, well, and he looks at various modes of this. Who has agreed to this? And not just silence, but um, hasn't argued against it, seems to be supportive of it all those years. He looks at, he looks at legislatures, at judges, um, legislatures representing the will of the people. So he says, I guess in my solitary opinion, I misread it. Mike Watson? That must have been a great question. I hope the answer was half as good. Just to follow up on the last point about it, wouldn't that mode of interpretation of be good really only for one generation? Yeah. Because that's in 1791, you still have to stay in public. Right, exactly. That's, I think, what's going on in his explanation there. 